friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. Welcome. Uh, Welcome to Skyline. So grateful to be here with you this morning. Grateful for all that God's doing in our midst. And um, we are in a series called Discipleship Begins with Beholding. You can throw my first slide up there. Um, And um, it really came out of a book uh, that was recommended to me by our friend Corey Russell. And he said, you read this book, it'll change your life. It'll change your view of what discipleship is and how to do it. And he was right. It really reframed um, our process of disciple making and really in some beautiful ways confirmed the way we've organized our church and why we do what we do and why we're a worshiping community first. Like that's the foundation of our community is because discipleship begins with beholding. It begins with an encounter where Jesus reveals himself to us. And if you read the Bible and just look for that word reveal, revealing, revealed, revelation, the Bible is full of God revealing himself to people. We have a God who desires to be known. He wants to be known. He doesn't hide from us. He's actually like literally baked in his um, uh, presence into creation, Paul says in Romans 1. So that's how discipleship begins. Our journey with God begins with we see him, we behold him. And that thing, when we meet him, it changes us forever. So discipleship then is, is um, building a life where we not only begin with beholding, but we build everything else on that. Like beholding becomes the foundation for everything else we do. So um, we read the Bible to behold him. We don't read it just for words and knowledge and for doctrine and theology. We read it to see God. We fast to behold him. We meditate to behold him. We sing to behold him. We meet together to behold him. This is all about him. It's all about him revealing himself to us. And so what we've done is we've reoriented our church around this idea. And it's fascinating because in this book, uh, Discipleship Begins with Beholding, he has this question. He says, are you willing to risk making God the primary attraction of your church? I mean, the fact that that's a risk for a church to make God the primary attraction tells us we may not be in the right place. But think about when people talk about their church and when they invite you, who do they talk about? Do they talk about the preacher? Do they talk about the worship team? Do they talk about the building? Do they talk about the youth group? Do they talk, or do they say, you've got to come meet these people who are obsessed with Jesus? They love him with their whole hearts and their main mission is just to get people into his presence just like the friends who carried their friend to Jesus, cut a hole in the roof and lower him down. It's like, if we can just get this guy near Jesus, everything could change. Seems like it's a risky proposition, but that's how you should really judge a church is are these people head over heels in love with Jesus? 
Is that what they do? And it's fascinating. So many times I meet people and it's like the language we've acquired about how we find a church is really fascinating. It's where church shopping. I know that. It's like, oh, I'm just church shopping. And, the, and when they meet the pastor and they say that, they're like, hey, I don't know if I'm coming here or not. <laughs> Which kind of is like, well, what do you want me to do? Like, come on, like, you know, like dance for you or like, you know, and, and then it's kind of like, well, now I'm a personal shopper. I'm like, oh, look at this. Look what we have over here. It's like, let's see if we can fit you into a youth group, just your size. Like, look what, I mean, it's like this weird thing. I've never been asked, does the power and presence of God manifest consistently in this room with these people? The things that Jesus did on earth, do you see them here? Do you see people uh, get demons cast out of them, get healed, get delivered, get saved? Are there no needy among you? Like those are the questions we should ask when we say, I am looking for the people of God. Is Jesus the primary attraction here? And I love Michael Miller, guy pastors up a room church. He says, our uh, church is designed to attract Jesus and him alone. Because if he shows up, everything else will be fine. <laughs> if he's present, we'll be good. We'll be good. So discipleship begins with beholding because if we're not careful, we'll simply disciple people into our own image or into an image of God that we've received through a denomination or a parachurch ministry or, or a certain person that we like the way they do it rather than having an encounter with the almighty God. Like Paul did on the Damascus road, like the sinful woman did with Jesus at the dinner with the Pharisees or the woman at the well or Matthew, the tax collector. People come into an encounter with Jesus and what do they do? They sell everything. They give it up and they follow. So we get this from 2 Corinthians uh, 3. My clicker is not working. Ooh, maybe, maybe, no. Okay, uh, just go to the next slide. I'll just, I'll tee you up. Next slide. Now, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, go back one. Go back, there you go, there you go. That's it. Second um, Corinthians 3. Now, if this ministry that brought death, which was engraved with letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? So what should the church be like? The church should be more glorious than the encounter the Israelites had with, uh, the, with Yahweh on the mountain. He's like, that was, imagine that. They couldn't even look at Moses' face, and yet this ministry should be even more glorious. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious had, has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. There you go. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while its radiance was fading away, but their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But listen to this, when everyone, whenever anyone turns to Jesus, the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is Spirit. As we behold his face, we actually become like him. So where does transformation begin? Transformation of the human heart begins with an encounter with God, with seeing him 
beholding him. Now, I know you guys liked my drawing last week, so I did another one. I've started an Instagram account. You can, no, I'm just joking. You can check me out online. So this is, it, it begins with beholding. We talked about, right? Our God is a revealing God. He desires to be known. So what happens is we behold him, and what do we get? We get revelation. He reveals himself to us. And this is really key. Proverbs 19, uh, 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, the modern church, which is obsessed with business and corporate world, they've turned that into, you better have an awesome vision to motivate people to do the things that the church needs to do. But that's not what this is talking about. Proverbs 19, the, the better transfer, uh, translation would be, where there is no revelation, people perish. Where there is no beholding, people perish. Where there is no prophecy, people die. For what? For lack of revelation. For lack of knowledge, the real knowledge from God. So we start with revelation. We behold him. He reveals himself. When we receive this revelation, we come into an encounter with the unfathomable. Unfathomable. That word turns you into Elmer Fudd. Unfathomable. Unfathomable beauty of Jesus. Like the most beautiful person in the world is Jesus right now in the presence of God. His eyes like fire, his hair like wool with a golden sash on his chest. His feet are like bronze. His voice is like rushing waters. And all around him are peals of thunder and creatures and elders falling down and worshiping tens upon tens of thousands of angels, all obsessed with one person, with him. Look at this beauty. That beauty overwhelms us and creates in us fascination, just like we talked about, like a boy in the lunchroom who looks across and sees a beautiful girl, and all of a sudden he's like, who is that? I have to know her. I've got to figure out where she hangs out, what she likes, where she goes, what she's in, all this stuff. You get fascinated. I, I did this in the prayer room this week. We, we practiced this process right here together with God's word. And we're reading Revelation where it says, Jesus holds in his hand, the Son of Man holds seven stars in his hand. Think about how big your hand has to be to hold seven stars. The, the, the sun, our sun, is 333,000 times bigger than the earth, more mass. And Jesus holds seven of those in his hand. And yet in that moment, it says he, he went down with his right hand and he touched John and he tells him not to be afraid. So the hand that holds seven stars can also touch you with a gentleness that stays you and brings peace. Psalm 63, we'll read today, it says his right hand upholds me. So if his right hand holds seven stars in it, do you think he can hold your life? Your hopes, your dreams, your grief, your pain, all that stuff. He's like, guess what? My right hand, you're in it. And I love you. He says, no one can snatch out of my hands what the Father's given me. He's given me you, so you are in my hand. This fascination where it's like, I got to know more about his right hand. What does that mean? This fascination turns into deep love for him as a person, not as an idea or a path to heaven, but the man, Jesus, the resurrected man. We begin to love him with our whole hearts. We begin to love the person of the Holy Spirit and our Father, God in heaven. Then as we love him and our fascination and his beauty, he stirs in us delight. We talked about last week, delight. And I forgot, so I'm going to show it this week. I've got the best uh, image of delight you've ever seen. If we can throw that up there, that would be awesome. Sound, sound, no sound. Back to the, uh, there to the pit. I'll come visit you in a little while, okay? I didn't 
got elves working back, here? Back, back, back. Can we go back? Did we get the wrong clip? Uh, great. All right. Try it again. Try it again. Could we hear it? You know it's coming. I'll start start it over. Picture this. Here we go. You got, uh... Yeah. I'm in love. I'm in love. And I don't care who knows That's it. it. Buddy, That's uh, it. Not now. Uh, that please go back to the, should be the Christian life. Christians running around the world be like, I'm in love. I'm in love. And I don't care who knows it. I mean, I just, I love that. He's delighting in his love. Proverbs says, delight in the wife of your youth. Why? Because soon she won't be the wife of your youth anymore. And if you don't delight in her now, you won't delight her in her in the future. You've got to delight constantly in the things you love. Be a person of delight, of laughter, of smiling. He says, God's face shines on you. He exults over you with singing. He delights in you. So give him back what he gives you. Delight in him. And I was talking to Dewey this week, and I said, so many people, they walk in church, and everybody looks like they smelled a fart. <laughs> and you're, they're like, I love this God. And you're like, really? Because your face is terrible. Like, you don't look like you're in love. You look like you're in pain. And you're like, well, I'm just being solemn before the Lord. And we're like, have you read about David? How he danced around the ark? And he's like, I'll be even more. You haven't even seen anything. I'll get even more undignified than that. I love that. So you get to this place of delight where you don't care what anybody else thinks about your love to God because you're so enraptured with who he is. You don't care who knows it. And then what that does in us is it starts to drill this deep well in us of desire. This desire to know God to be with him where it changes you on the inside. So if you got your Bible, we're going to turn to Psalm 63. Reed, could you hit that next slide? Is that Reed up there? I thought I saw his face. That's him. Good looking guy right there. I see him. I see you. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you. This sounds like a lovesick teenager, like at night I can't sleep because I think of you in the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David's writing this from the desert of Judah because Absalom, has his own son, has betrayed him, taken over the country, and he flees into the desert. He's about 60 years old. And at 60 years old, he has stayed so fresh in his vision and beholding of Jesus that he's like, hold up. This isn't the time to complain or wail. This is the time to connect my heart to its one desire, which is, God, I need you in this dry and weary land. So what you see is beholding is the basis of David's desire. Where do you get desire from? How do you gain desire? You get it from seeing him. When you see him, when you worship him, when you call on him, it actually forms in you desire. He said, I have seen, I've beheld. And I'll just say this, if you'll let it, your past revelation can fuel your present pursuit. Your past revelation. But if you're not careful, you'll live off the fumes of your past revelation. 
And 10 years from now, you'll be telling about the story about, remember that time, how cool it was, how awesome God was in our community, and that was really great, and then we all went back to our lives as normal. And all of our stories are old. They're all about camp, and they're all about YWAM, and they're all about college ministry, and when I was young married and wasn't busy, and before my job got awesome, and I got, you know, made a bunch of money. It's like all these old stories. But instead, David uses that to, like, thrust his life into God's presence and be like, I remember, I've seen you. So if you want to have desire, you need a change of desire, you've got to get into contact with God. You've got to use whatever it takes to get back to him. And many times it takes remembering. David in Psalm 51 says, I remember how I used to lead the throng of worshipers to your house. Restore to me, God, the joy of my salvation. And then I will lead transgressors in your way. Oh, 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 Lord, I remember. Do it again. That's our prayer constantly over our lives. Lord, do it again. What you did there, do it again. I'm not satisfied just with that. I want continual and fresh revelation in your presence. My desires for you. The only does that, not just that, but it also dictates our response. He says, because of that, listen, I will sing. I will lift my hands. Imagine him in the desert. In a dry and parched land, David lifting his hands and singing songs to God. I will glorify you. I will praise you in the midst of my troubles. I will tell my heart, seek his face. And my heart says, oh, I do seek his face. And he just lifts his hand, but his beholding dictated his uh, response. And this is what I would call when I work with people, spiritual instinct. I'm so blessed to come from a godly family who came from a godly family who came from a godly family. I mean, it's like my great, great, great grandpa was a circuit riding Methodist preacher in Oklahoma in the territory. In the 1880s, he was riding his horse around to all the little places preaching the gospel of Jesus. Like, like, so your spiritual instinct goes, I'm in trouble. What should I do? I should go and seek the Lord. I got to get in church. I got to be with people who know Jesus. I need to seek counsel. I got to open the word of God. My spiritual instinct leads me to God, not away from him when things get hard. And David's like, I will do the things that I know attract your attention, God. The Old Testament says the Lord's eyes search to and fro over the earth, seeking for those whose hearts are fully committed to him that he might strengthen them. And when we sing and praise and glorify, we're like sending up an SOS to God. Help me. Help me. And guess what? He wants to help you. He's not going to leave you alone. Chase just said it. So it does that. It dictates our response. But then it reveals our true position. In the midst of all that, you get in contact with him and you remember, oh, his right hand upholds me. I'm actually singing under the covenant, under the covering of God. I sing in the shadow of your wings. So when you felt like you were alone, you weren't really alone. Right? He's actually with you. He's like, I'm actually upholding you in the midst of this. Why do we focus on beholding? Because if we're, if we're not beholding him, if we're not in his presence, we'll start to think that maybe God doesn't love us. He doesn't care about us. He doesn't see us. He's not, he's not upholding us. We're on our own. And then the last thing that it does is it taps into your desire and trains it. So this is really key because if we're not careful, we never get to our actual desires. And if you don't get to your actual desires, you can't actually train them in the way to continually go back 
to the things. So, so David says this, your love is better than life. In a dry and weary land, what, what do I need? I don't need anything else. I need you. And if we're not careful, we'll get in dry and weary lands in our life and we'll seek to fill it with everything but God. Even good things that we think, well, this would be helpful. I'm going to do this. And, and no, what does David say? The only thing I need is you. I've trained my heart to know that only God fixes the problems that I have. Only him. Ecclesiastes says this, he has set eternity in your heart. Can you just meditate on that for a second? So all of time stretched across, I, I don't know what eternity is. I have no number. He has taken the reality of that and he has put it down. And literally when you were formed in your mother's womb, he touched you with it. So that every single human being has like a homing beacon and a desire to get to back to a place they've never been. And they don't understand why it's there, but it's there. And the job of the church is to behold Jesus and create a place where his presence is so real, it, it opens people up to that eternity that's in their heart. And they're like, oh, it's actually made for something else. I was made for something more. No wonder all the stuff in this world cannot satisfy me. All the money, sex, power, joy, fulfillment, experience, vacations, all that stuff. Why can't it fulfill me? It's because eternity is the only thing that can satisfy me. I was made for him. Augustine says, I'm restless until I find rest in him. My heart was made for him. The deepest desire of every human being is to know and be known by God, to love and be loved by God. Now, in our fallen state, right, this gets covered up by all sorts of other desires, and it gets twisted and misdirected. And so, again, the role of the church is to reconnect you to your deepest desire, is to remind you of who you are and where you were, where, where you were actually made. So I get this question a lot. Why, why is Skyline so different in how we kind of do things? And why do you guys worship and pray so much? And, you know, why don't you do this or do that? And I'll just say, because if we're not careful, our, our church will be complicit in the covering up of your true desire. We'll feed you things that don't actually get to that deepest place. And I just made a commitment in my heart five years ago. I said, I'm, on, I, I'm not going to do that anymore. Like, I'm only going to serve people the real meal, right? And then it's just a choice if you want it or not. And if you don't want it now, that's great. We love you. We'll be here for you. God's pursuing you like you would not believe. But yet, I will not cover up that thing with anything that isn't that thing. <laughs> and it's him. So we want a community that will train and orient your desire simply to him. Simply to him. And I just want to say, as we've done that, we have more people giving, more people serving, more people reading the Bible, more people getting freedom, more people getting saved, more people loving each other than we ever have since we gave ourselves over to this one thing, to the one thing. And this is the thing. I think there's three modes, right, of agreement. It's like, I will... I won't or I want. My buddy John preached this in a sermon a couple weeks ago and it really impacted me. And most of the church's discipleship operates in the I will or I won't. I'll do that. Okay, I'll show up for that. No, no, I won't. I can't. 
But if you can get people to want something, nothing will stop you from getting what you want. And the, the sad truth is right now, all of us are getting what we want. Because your heart leads you into things you want. We do the things we do because we want to do them. And then what the gospel does is it awakens us to the things we no longer want to do that we're actually doing. And then we go through the crisis where Paul says, the things I want to do, I can't do. And the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. And he's like, yet glory be to God. Because he has the victory for me through the Holy Spirit. And so as the spirit comes alive in us, as we listen to his voice, we actually start to do the things we actually want to do. Not the things that our, our flesh wants to do. And it just hit me this week. I think the number one sin in the American church, I don't think it's adultery. I don't think it's pornography. I don't think it's greed. I don't think it's any of the things that most churches preach constantly against. I think it's a lack of desire for Jesus. Our lives many times demonstrate a lack of desire to be around the one that we claim saved us from sin, Satan, death, and hell. And we will gather for all sorts of other things and spend our money and time and sacrifice for things that are lesser loves. But when it comes time to glorify him and gather to join him, to look at him, to be loved by him, we're just like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy. I've got other things. I got, you know, and and it's, it's literally like there's something happening. And this gets expressed in boredom and apathy. And then it gets expressed in idolatry, which is literally giving our desires to lesser loves. And many of them are good things. They're things God made, but they're not ultimate things. We've just got them out of order. We've put our family above God. We've put our kids above God. We've put sports above God. We've put our career above God. And our life expresses that our real desire is for something else. Yet if you ask somebody like Jesus, like, Peter, do you love me? It's always like, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And I believe in my heart, I actually love him. And many times, my desire expressed, externalized, shows something else. David got to this place, Psalm 27. He finally got to this place. He said, one thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple. David, what do you want? I want God. That's it. I want God. I want God in the desert. I want God in the temple. I want God in the palace. I want God in the shepherd lands. What do you want, David? I want him. I just want him. He's the treasure in the field. Jesus says these things. His invitation is to who? All you who are thirsty. If you are not thirsty, he has nothing for you. Let's just get really honest. If you're not thirsty, he's not a teacher or a rabbi or a prophet. He is the savior of mankind, the master of the universe. He says, if you're thirsty, come to me. If you're hungry, come to me. Blessed are all those who hunger and thirst. Those who lack desire, he says, I I'm sorry. 
And this is the beautiful thing. If you have desire, you can be the most sinful person in the world and God can use you. Look at David's life. Your righteousness offers God nothing, but your hunger for him is everything. The church is full of hungry people, not good people. It should be full, (laughs) I should say, of hungry people, not good people. Sean Piper said it this way, if we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because we've nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. Friends, in these days, there is an invitation for the church to clear out of its heart all the small things that are taking up all the space so that your heart could get taken up by one thing. One thing I ask and that I seek. There's a man named Evan Roberts who led the Welsh revival in many ways. He said this, uh, he said, uh, there, there, or there, this was written about him that the great turning point of his life was when he visited this meeting where it felt like revival was kind of bubbling up. In one meeting, he heard the evangelist pray, Lord, bend us. And the word struck, uh, stuck to his heart and mind. The Holy Spirit said to Evan, that's what you need. He knew he had to consecrate himself to God before the Spirit would come. The next day, he felt as if he was bursting inside uh, in the chapel meeting. He says this. He says, I felt a living power pervading my chest. It took my breath away and my legs trembled exceedingly. This living power became stronger and stronger as each one prayed until I felt it would tear me apart. My whole chest was in turmoil, and if I had not prayed, it would have burst. I fell on my knees with my arms over the seat in front of me. My face was bathed in perspiration and tears flowed in streams. I cried out, bend me, bend me. (laughs) He got into contact with God. And what did he have to do? He had to get on his face and he had to cry out. It was God's commending love which bent me. What a wave of peace flooded my chest. I was filled with compassion for those who must bend at the judgment and I wept. Following that, the salvation of the human soul was solemnly impressed on me. I felt ablaze with the desire to go through the length and breadth of Wales to tell the Savior. He began praying more seriously. One night, he and his friend were playing. He asked if he thought God could give them 100,000 souls in Wales, and they never thought in nine months they would double that. 200,000 people giving their lives to Jesus, and out of that, millions of people across the globe giving their life to Jesus. He made this statement. He said, bend the church, save the world. Bend the church, save the world. And I just need, I need us to know this morning, if the church doesn't bend, the world will not. They'll not look at us. Because all we have for the world is our desire for Jesus and the knowledge that he alone can save. And so we need God to bend us. Now, can I say, we're seeing the first fruits of this, which is really beautiful. Wednesday night, we're in this room worshiping, and I look down in the front row, and there are like six teenage girls. I know some of you are here, around here, with their Bibles open, somewhere on their, on their knees or face, and they're, they're worshiping. And I just thought, Lord, isn't that beautiful? Six or seven girls who live in Edmond say, what do you want to do on a Wednesday night? You want to get coffee? You want to do something fun? You want to do something cool? And they're like, no, let's drive into the city, into a place where all they do on that night is worship and praise Jesus. 
That's the first signs, friends, of revival is when our desires lead us to him. Like, what do I want? Oh, I, just, I just need to be with him. I need to see him. I want to know him. Your desires. Our young people, I've seen it in our early 20-somethings, we're seeing college students start to show up who just desire to know God. That's it. They just want him. Um, so I'm going to invite the band back up, and we're going to close. But uh, as we do, I'm just going to read some passages of Scripture that I feel like the, the Lord wanted me to read. Because if we're not careful, we will lose touch with the reality of our salvation. Like what God's done for us. Um, so I want you just to, whatever this means to you, but would you just take a posture of prayer? Maybe close your eyes. Maybe you want to just like set your hands on your knees and open your palms up, which is just like a posture of receiving. <laughs> I mean, this is crazy. Listen to the words of Pilate. Behold the man. <laughs> Even Pilate is telling you to look at Jesus. Behold him. Isaiah 53. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. This man, Jesus, was marred and disfigured to demonstrate his love for sinners. There's no other person in history and there will never be another who would die for sinners. Much less to be marred and disfigured and to be put on display as a spectacle, to be mocked and jeered, to be abused and maligned in public. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took upon himself our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, the, of, of us all. I love that. We're like sheep. We go astray, but guess what? This one who hung on the cross for you, he leaves the 99 for the one. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. 
and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Jesus suffered for you, not just in body, but in his soul. your trauma and emotional distress and your grief and your sorrow find its twin in Jesus. He knows all of it. Therefore, God says, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Peter says this, to this you are called because Christ suffered for you. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the judge who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been, uh, been healed. Like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Then I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. John speaking here in Revelation, he says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the, the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw, I beheld a lamb looking as, it, as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Your word to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. What are we in the kingdom of God? We're priests. What do priests do? Priests live to worship and they will reign on the earth last passage before we pray. This was read in the prayer room this morning out of Song of Songs. I didn't think I'd read out of Song of Songs today. But wow, this just hit me. So the lamb who was slain, this is how he sees you. I want you to hear this. This is his word over you this morning. at you and calls you beloved. My beloved spoke and said to me, arise my darling. Do you just receive that this morning? The word of the lamb who was slain for your sins looks over your life this morning and says, arise my darling. 
my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone, flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land, the fig trees form its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. with me is really key. Jesus says, I've called the disciples so they might be with me. His desire is to be with you. The question is, what is your desire this morning? So I've been praying for you. You don't know, but I've been praying for you. For some of you, God is awakening you a desire that you've never actually had before, which is simply to be with him. every chance you get because you're understanding his great love for you and you're like oh this is new what is this i've never discovered this no one's ever told me this that god just wants to be with me just wants to love me he just wants to call me beautiful call me darling he wants to be with me some of you this morning god is reawakening desire sing, I I just want to do something real quick. If you're in here this morning and you got radically saved, you were like, I was a sinner. I was Paul, the sinner of sinners. And I walked into a church and somebody preached the gospel and it ripped me open. And I went to the altar and I got saved. Stand up. Anybody here? You're like, I got saved by Jesus. He's my savior. I was in the pit of death and hell, and he plucked me out. How could I not worship him? So listen, this is not everybody, so this is key. (laughs) He didn't, if you're sitting, he didn't do less for you than he did for them. There was no lesser death on the cross for those who grew up in church. (laughs) For those who are mostly good and just like but friends like this is our Jesus the one who saves the one who rescues I want everybody to stand to your feet I want you to close your eyes and I want to pray for you and then we're going to sing but here's why I want, I want if there's something stirring in you this desire you're like I want more want to want the one thing. I don't know that I want it yet, but I want to want it. I just want you to respond this morning. If you've been living in a dry and weary land, you just need to say, I'm going to be like David. I will sing. I will glorify. I will praise. I will lift my hands in faith, knowing that God always meets the hungry. As we sing this morning, I just want to invite you, if you feel hunger stirring in your heart, you're like, man, I feel like I'm smelling the aroma of a meal and it's waking me up. I want you to come to the altars and we're just going to have a time of worship. I just want you to come. You can come kneel. You can come stand. Come down front and just worship. But we have to respond. When you smell the meal, you don't sit in the other room. You walk to the kitchen. You go, what's cooking? What's happening? When are we eating? I want it. 
I just want to remind you, this meal is for everyone. If you're in here and you're like, I screwed up my life. There's no hope for me. I'll never get it back. I'm actually just here because I feel guilty and ashamed and I don't know where else to go. You're in the right place. This meal is for you to come back, to return. The Father is welcoming you. He says, that desire, I put it in your heart. Come back to me. Arise, my darling, come with me, and I can heal your heart. So just, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, would you just come? If you feel that you're hungry for him, it's awakening, just come even now. Jesus, we love you. We bless you in a dry and weary land. We come to the understanding that no other thing can heal us. Nothing can touch that place in our heart, God. Would you forgive us for our lack of hunger? Would you deliver us this morning from lesser loves? Would you reprioritize our life? Clear all the small things out to where it's just you filling every space. Yeah. We love you, Jesus. You did all that for us. All those things I read in the scripture, you did it for me. Yeah. All you want is a church that wants you. All you want is a church that wants you. We want you, Jesus. We want all of you. We don't want just the parts we like. We want all the parts that make us uncomfortable and that we don't understand. We just take it all, Jesus. Yeah. So we're going to sing Psalm 63, and I just want to invite you, if you feel moved, come to the altar. If you need prayer, grab a friend and bring them with you and say, come pray for me at the altar because I want God. I want him.